Section 8 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Malizia. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. We have endeavoured to point out in our brief sketch of Mozart's life the chief influences to which he was exposed, the extent to which he assimilated and developed the various elements thus absorbed must determine his place in musical history. The history of every art, says Mr. W. H. Haddo, shows a continuous interaction between form and content. The artist finds himself confronted with a double problem. What is the fittest to say? And what is the fittest manner of saying it? As a rule, one generation is mainly occupied with questions of design. Another takes up the scheme and brings new emotional force to bear upon it. And thus the old outlines stretch and waver. The old rules become inadequate. And the form itself, grown more flexible through a fuller vitality, once more asserts its claim and attains a fuller organisation. The generation preceding Mozart and Haydn had settled for the time being the question of form. Haydn said, as it were, the last word in determining the design, applying it in the most diverse ways and pointing the road to further development. Mozart found it sufficient to his needs and set himself to fill it with the most varied content of melodic invention. The analogy drawn by Mr. Haddo between the Greek drama and the classic forms of music is particularly apt. In both the plot is constructed in advance and remains ever the same. The artist is left free to apply his genius to the poetic interpretation of situations, the delineation of character, the beauty of rhythm and verse. It was in these things that Mozart excelled. He brought nothing essentially new, but by virtue of his consummate genius, he endowed the symphonic forms as he found them with a hitherto unequalled depth and force of expression, an individuality so indefinable that we can describe it only as Mozartian. In no sense was Mozart a reformer. In opera, unlike Gluck, he did not find his limitations irksome, but knew how to achieve within these limitations an ideal of dramatic truth without detracting from the quality of his musical essence. His style is as independent of psychology as it is of formal interpretation. It is sufficient unto itself, ineffable in its beauty, irresistible in its charm. This utter independence and self-sufficiency of style enabled him to use with equal success the vocal and instrumental idioms. And in his work, we actually see an assimilation of the two styles and an interchange of their individual elements. Mozart's inspiration was primarily a melodic one, and for that reason we see him purposely subordinating the harmonic substructure and often reducing it to its simplest terms. If he employs at times figures of accompaniment which are obvious and even trite, it is done with an evident purpose, to throw into relief the individuality of his melodies, those rich broideries and graceful arabesques which Mozart knew how to weave about a simple tonic and dominant. No composer ever achieved such variety within so limited a harmonic range. On the other hand, it has been truthfully said that Mozart was the greatest polyphonist between Bach and Brahms. 
he was able to make the most learned use of contrapuntal devices when occasion demanded, but never in the use of these devices did he descend to dry formalism. His incidental use of counterpoint often produces the most telling effects. The accentuation of a motif by imitation, a caressing countermelody to add poignancy to an expressive phrase, the reciprocal germination of musical ideas. All these he applies with consummate science, and without ever sacrificing ingenuous spontaneity. Again, in his harmonic texture, there are moments of daring which perplexed his contemporaries, and even today are open to dispute. The sudden injection of a dissonant note into an apparently tranquil harmonic relation, such as the famous C major quartet, which aroused such violent discussion when first heard, or in the first allegro theme of the Don Giovanni overture, is his particularly favourite way of introducing colour. This chromaticism of Mozart's is one of the striking differences between his music and Haydn's. Haydn makes his richest point of colour by sheer abrupt modulation, Mozart by iridescent chromatic motion within the limits of a clearly defined harmonic sequence. In drawing a further comparison between the two Viennese masters, we find in Haydn a greater simplicity and directness of expression, a more unadorned, unhesitating utterance, as against Mozart, to whom perfectly chiselled phrases, a polished, graceful manner of speech are second nature. Whether his mood is gay or sad, his emotions careless or deep. The distinction is aptly illustrated by the juxtaposition of the following two themes, quoted in volume 4 of the Oxford History of Music. Excerpt Haydn, Finale of Quartet in G, Opus 33, Number 5 Excerpt, Mozart, Finale of Quartet in D minor, K421. But the difference is not so much in phraseology as in the broader aspects of invention and method. The fundamental division lies, of course, in the character of the two men. Haydn, the simple, ingenuous peasant, whose moods range from sturdy humour to solid dignity. Mozart, the keen, vivacious, witty cosmopolitan, whose humour always tends to satire, but whose exalted moments are moments of soulful subjective contemplation. His music is accordingly more epigrammatic, on the other hand, and of a deeper, rounder sonority on the other. Mozart and Haydn first became acquainted with each other in 1780, when both had behind them long careers full of creative activity. It is significant, however, that practically all the works which today constitute our knowledge of them were created after this meeting, and neither their music nor the fact of their admiration for each other leaves any doubt as to the power and depth of their mutual influence. Mozart profited probably more in matters of technique and structure. 
Haydn in matters of refinement and delicacy. The complete list of Mozart's works includes no less than 21 piano sonatas and fantasias, besides a number for four hands, 42 violin sonatas, 26 string quartets, 7 string quintets, several string duos and trios, 41 symphonies, 28 divertimenti, etc. for orchestra, 25 piano concertos, 6 violin concertos, and 18 operas and other dramatic works, besides single movements for diverse instruments, chamber music for wind and for strings and wind, songs, arias, and ecclesiastical compositions of every form, including 15 masses. But only a portion of these is of consequence to the music lover of our day, the portion which constitutes virtually the last decade of his activity. The rest, though full of grace and charm, has only historical significance. His piano sonatas, we have seen, followed the model of Schubert, and in some measure of Emmanuel Bach, but the style of these works, available to the amateur and valuable as study material, is more individual than that of either of the earlier masters and their musical worth is far superior. The first of them were written about 1774 for Count von Dönitz of Munich, and represent his contribution to the light, elegant style of the period. In some later ones he strikes a more serious note. Dashing or majestic allegros alternate with caressing cantabiles, graceful andantes or adagios of delicious beauty and romantic expressiveness. The violin sonatas, though supposed to have been written chiefly for the diversion of his lady pupils, the instrument was still considered most suitable for feminine amusement, are full of beauty, strength and dramatic expression. The string quartets, the first of which he wrote during his Italian journey of 1770, are in his early period slight and unpretentious, but lucid and delicate compositions in which we may trace influences of Sammartini and Boccherini. From 1773 on, however, the influence of Haydn's genius is apparent. By 1781, when Mozart took up his residence in Vienna, quartet playing had become one of the favourite pastimes of musical amateurs. Haydn was the acknowledged leader in this popular field, and whoever ventured on the same field was obliged to serve under his banner. During the period of 1782 to 1785, Mozart wrote a series of six quartets, which he dedicated to that master as the fruit of long and painful study inspired by his example. After playing them over at Mozart's house, on such occasions Haydn took the first violin part, Dittersdorf the second, Mozart the viola, and Van Hal the cello. Haydn turned to Leopold Mozart and said, quote, I assure you solemnly and as an honest man that I consider your son to be the greatest composer of whom I have ever heard. End quote. Like Haydn and Boccherini, Mozart was commissioned to write some quartets for the King of Prussia, William II. And since his royal patron himself played the cello, he cleverly emphasised that instrument without, however, depriving the other instruments of their independent power of expression. Mozart's partiality for quartet writing is evident from the many sketches in that form which have been preserved. They are among the masterpieces of chamber music as are also his string duos, trios, and especially his four great string quintets. The celebrated one in G minor is, as Jan says, a veritable psychological revelation. 
Few pieces in instrumental music express a mood of passionate excitement with such energy. Mozart's concertos for the piano, and also those for the violin, were written primarily for his own use. The best of them date from the period preceding his Paris journey, when he expected to make practical use of them, for he was a virtuoso of no mean powers on both instruments. There are six concertos for either instrument, every one full of pure beauty and a model of form. In them he substituted the classic sonata form for the variable pattern used in the earlier concertos, and hence he may be considered the creator of the classic concerto, his only definite contribution to the history of form. They are not merely brilliant pieces for technical display, but symphonic, both in proportion and import. In them are found some of the finest moments of his inspiration. It is the Mozart of the early concerti to whom we owe the imperishable matter of the Viennese period, says Mr. Haddow, and the influences which helped to mould successively the style of Haydn, Beethoven and Schubert. Of Mozart's symphonies and serenades, terms which in some cases are practically synonymous, there are about eleven that are of lasting value, and at least three that are imperishable. With the exception of the Paris Symphony, a brilliant and charming pièce d'occasion, which was referred to above, all of them were written during the Vienna period, and the three great ones flowed from the composer's pen within the brief space of six weeks in 1787, the year of Don Giovanni. In the matter of form, again, Mozart followed in the tracks of the Mannheim school. The usual three movements remain, but, like Haydn, he usually adds the minuet after the slow movement. The developed ternary form is applied in the first, and more and more frequently also in other movements, especially the last, where it takes the place of the lighter rondo. But the musical material is richer and its handling far more ingenious than that of his predecessors, just as the spiritual import is much deeper. The movements are more closely knit. They have a unity of emotion, which clearly points in the direction of Beethoven's later works. There is, if not an idée fixe, at any rate, a sentiment fixe. It is manifested in a multiplicity of ways. More consistent use of the principal thematic material in the working out. Reassertion of themes after the transition, the section leading from the exposition to the development, introductions which are, as it were, improvisations on the mood of the piece, and codas summing up the subjective matter. The same unity exists between the different movements. A note of grief or passion sounded in the first movement is either reiterated in the last, or else we feel that the composer has emerged from the struggle in triumph or noble joy. Only the minuet, an almost constant quantity with Mozart, brings a momentary relief, or abandon to a lighter vein, if it is not itself, as in the G minor symphony, nobly dignified and touched with sadness. In the use of orchestral instruments, too, Mozart emulated the practice of the Mannheim composers. Their works were usually scored for eight parts, that is, two oboes or flutes, and two horns, besides the usual string body. Clarinets were still rare at that time, and parts provided for them were, for that reason, arranged for optional use, being interchangeable with the oboe parts. Mozart, although he had heard them as early as 1778 at Mannheim, used them only in his later works, and even then did not often employ that part of their range which reaches below the oboe's compass, still thinking of them as alternates for that instrument. Footnote. 
It is a well-known fact that the moment of his first acquaintance with the instrument, Mozart became enamoured of its tone. No ear ever was more alive to the purely sensuous qualities of tone colour. End footnote. But in the manner of writing for instruments, Mozart's works show a real novelty. In the Mannheim symphonies, the woodwind instruments usually doubled the string parts, but occasionally they were given long, sustained notes, and the brass even went beyond mere accent notes, die Rinforza, to the extent of an occasional sustained note or any individual motif. Haydn and Mozart at first confirmed this practice, but in their later works they introduced a wholly new method, which Dr. Riemann calls filigree work, and which often forms the basis of Beethoven's orchestral style. The idea to conceive the orchestra as a multiplicity of units, each of which may, upon proper occasion, interpose an essential word, without, however, protruding itself in the manner of a solo, and thus disturbing in any way the true character of the symphonic ensemble, was foreign to the older orchestral music. A mere dialogue between individual instruments or bodies of instruments was, of course, nothing new, but the cutting up of a single melodic thread and having different instruments take it up alternately, as Haydn did, was an innovation, and immediately led to another step, viz. the interweaving of individual melodic sections, dovetail fashion, thus. Except Haydn, Finale, 36th Symphony. And this in turn brought, with Mozart, the cooperation of groups of instruments in such dovetail formations, and led finally to the more sophisticated disposition of instrumental colour, as in the second theme of the great G minor symphony. This sort of figure has nothing in common with the old polyphony, in which there is always one predominating theme, shifting from one voice to another. The equal and independent participation of several differently coloured voices in the polyphonic web is the characteristic feature of modern orchestral polyphony, the style of Beethoven and his successors down to Strauss. To Mozart, Dr. Riemann gives the credit for the first impulses to this free disposition of orchestral parts. It is evident, however, only in his last works, and notably the three great symphonies, the mighty Jupiter, in C, with the great double fugue in the last movement, the radiantly cheerful E-flat, and the more deeply shaded romantic G minor, the greatest orchestral composition of the 18th century, works which alone would have assured their creators immortality. It would be futile to attempt a description of these monumental creations, but we cannot forego a few general marks about them. They preached the gospel of classicism in its highest perfection. Beauty of design was never more potent in art. It is Praxitelian purity of form, warmed with delicate yet rich colour. The expositions are as perfect in form as they are rich in content. The developments a world of iridescent colour, of playful suggestions and sweet reminders. The clean-cut individuality of his themes, as eloquent as Wagner's leitmotifs, so lend themselves to transmutation that a single motif of three notes, revealed in a thousand new aspects, suffices as thematic material for an entire development section. We refer to the original theme of the G minor. A fascinating character, displayed in every conceivable circumstance and situation, would be the literary equivalent of this. 
but often the characters are two or three, and sometimes strange faces appear and complicate the story. Mozart is the master of subtle variants, of unexpected yet not unnatural turns in melody. His recapitulations, therefore, are rarely literal. The essence remains the same, but it is deliciously intensified by almost imperceptible means. Compare the second theme of the last movement of the G minor in its original form with its metamorphosis. Excerpt. Exposition. Excerpt. Restatement. What infinite variety there is within the limits of these three symphonies. The allegros, now majestic, noble, now rhythmically alert, scintillant, joyous, now full of suggestions of destiny. The andante sometimes grave or sad, sometimes a caressing supplication followed by radiant bliss. The finales triumphant or careless, a furious presto or a mighty fugue. It is a riot of beauty and a maze of delicate dreams. But nowhere is Mozart more himself than in his minuets. The minuet was his cradle song. The first one he wrote, at four, would have set the feet of gay salons to dancing, but later they took real meaning, became alive with more than rhythm. Whether they go carelessly romping through flowery fields, full of the effervescence of youth, as in the Jupiter Symphony, whether they sway languidly in sensuous rhythms, or race ahead in fretful flight, with themes flitting in and out in breathless pursuit, they are always irresistible. And what balmy consolation, what sweet reassurance there lies in his trios. Haydn gave life to the minuet, Mozart gave it beauty. The outstanding feature, however, not only of Mozart's symphonies, but of all his instrumental music, is its peculiarly melodic quality. The constant sensuous grace of melody, regardless of rhythm or speed, other composers had achieved a cantabile quality in slow movements, but rarely in the allegros and prestos. Pergolesi, perhaps, came nearest to Mozart in this respect, and there is no doubt that that side of Mozart's inspiration was rooted in the vocal style of the Italians. Here, then, is the point of contact between symphony and opera. Mozart is the conclusion, the final result of the strong influence which operatic song had exerted upon instrumental music since the beginning of the 18th century. On the other hand, Mozart brought symphonic elements into the opera, in which, so far, it had been lacking, and it is safe to say that only an instrumental composer could have accomplished what Mozart accomplished in dramatic music. Great as were Mozart's achievements in the field of symphonic music, his services to opera were at least as important. Recent critics, such as Kretschmar, are wont to exalt the dramatic side of his genius above any other. It is certain at any rate that his strongest predilection lay in that direction. Already in 1764, his father writes from London how the eight-year-old composer has his head filled with an idea to write a little opera for the young people of Salzburg to perform. After the return home, his dramatic imagination makes him personify the parts of his counterpoint exercises, as, 
il signor d'alto, il marchese tenore, il duco basso, etc. Time and time again he utters his dearest wish to write an opera. Once it is rather French than German, and rather Italian than French. Another time, not a buffa, but a seria. Curious enough, neither in seria nor in the purely Italian style did he attain his highest level. But his suggestions and much of his inspiration came from Italy. In serious opera, Hasse, Giomelli, Paesillo, Maio, Traietto, and even minor men served him for models, and of course, his friend Christian Bach, and Mozart never rose above their level. Lacking the qualities of a reformer, he followed the models as closely as he did in other fields, but here was a form that was not adequate to his genius, too worn out and lifeless. Gluck might have helped him, but he came too late. And so it happened that Mitridate, 1770, Ascanio in Albo, a serenata, 1771, Il Sogno di Scipione, and Lucio Silla, 1772, Il Re Pastore, Dramatic Cantata, 1775, Idomenio, 1781, and even La Clemenza di Tito, written in his very last year, are as dead today as the worst of their contemporaries. But with opera buffa, it was otherwise. Various influences came into play here, Piccini's La Buona Figliuola, and, though we have no record of Mozart's hearing it, its glorious ancestor Pergolesi's Serva Padrona, the successes of the opera comique Doni, Monsigny, Gretri, even Russo, all these re-echoed in his imagination. And then the flexibility of the form, the thing was unlimited, capable of infinite expansion. What if it had become trite and silly? A Mozart could turn dross to gold, he could deepen a puddle into a well. This was his greatest achievement. What Gluck did for the opera Syria, he did for the buffer. He took it into realms beyond the ken of man, where its absurdities became golden dreams, its figures flesh and blood, its buffoonery divine abandon. The serious side of the story, too, became less and less parody and more and more reality, till in Don Giovanni we do not know where the point of gravity lies. He calls it a dramma giocosa, but the joke is all too real. Death, even of a profligate, has its sting. But what a music! What a halo of sound Mozart has cast about it all! What are words of the text, after all, especially when we do not understand them? These melodies carry their own message. They cannot be sung without expression. They are expression themselves. Is there in all music a more soul-stirring beauty than that of De Vienni non tardar, Figaro, Act 2, or In Diesen Teuren Hallen, Magic Flute, Act 2, or more delicious tenderness than Cherubino's Non so più, and Voi che sapete, or Don Giovanni's serenade, De Vienni alla Fenestra, or more dashing gallantry than Fin Can Dalvino, were duets ever written with half the grace of La Cidarum La Mano in Don Giovanni, or the letter scene in Figaro. They are jewels that will continue to glow when opera itself is reduced to cinders. The purely musical elements of opera are Mozart's chief concern. If he gives himself wholly to that without detriment to the drama, it is only by virtue of his own extraordinary power. 
Mozart could not, like Gluck, make himself forget that he was a musician, and would not if he could. Yet his scenes live, his characters are more real than Gluck's. All this despite set arias, despite coloratura, despite everything that Gluck abolished. But in musical details he followed him, in the betrayal of mood, in painting backgrounds, and in the handling of the chorus. Gluck painted landscape, but Mozart drew portraits. In musical characterization, his mastery is undisputed. Again, we have no use for words. The musical accents, the contour of the phrase and its rhythm delineate the man more precisely than a sketcher's pencil. Here, once more, beauty is the first law. It sheds its evening glow over all. No mere frivolity here, no dissolute roisterers, no faithless wives. Don Giovanni, the gay cavalier, becomes a demon of divine daring. The urchin, Cherubino, is made the incarnation of youth, spring and love. The countess personifies the ideal of pure womanhood. Beaumarchais, in short, becomes Mozart. La Finta Semplice, 1768, La Finta Giardiniera, 1775, and some fragmentary works are, like Mozart's serious operas, now forgotten. But Così van Tutte, 1790, Le Nozze di Figaro, 1786, and Don Giovanni, 1787, continue with unimpaired vitality as part of every respectable operatic repertoire. The same is true of his greatest German opera, Die Sauberflöte, and in a measure of Die Entführung aus dem Serail. Germany owes a debt of undying gratitude to the composer of these, for they accomplished the long-fought-for victory over the Italians. Hiller and his Zingspiel colleagues had tried it and failed, and so had Dittersdorf, the mediocre Schweitzer allied to Wieland the poet, and numerous others. Now for the first time tables were turned and Italy submitted to the influence of Germany. Mozart had beaten them on their own ground and had the audacity to appropriate the spoil for his own country. Without Mozart, we could have no Meistersinger, cries Kretschmar, which means no Freischutz, no Oberon, and no Rosenkavalier. But only we of today can know these things. Joseph II, who had ordered the Entführung, and whose express command was necessary to bring it upon the boards, opined on the night of the premiere that it was too beautiful for our ears and a powerful lot of notes, my dear Mozart. Exactly as many as are necessary, your majesty, retorted the composer. It was an evening of triumph, but a triumph soon forgotten. For, after a few more attempts, the lights went down on German opera. The national vaudeville and Salieri and his crew returned with all the wailing heroines, the strutting heroes, the gruesome ghosts, and all the paraphernalia of serious opera. However, the people, the common people, liked Punch and Judy better, or at least its equivalent. Magic opera was the vogue, the absurder the better, and Schikaneder was their man. Some 18th century Chantecler had left a surplus of bird feathers on his hands, and these suggested Papageno, the hero of another magic opera, the Magic Flute. The foolishness of its plot is unbelievable, but Mozart was won over. Magic opera. Why, any opera would do. Now we know how he loved it, and now he used his own magic, his wonderful strains, and, lo, nonsense became logic. 
the silly mixture of fairy romance and Freemasonic mysticism was buried under a flood of sound. Schikaneda is forgotten, and Mozart stands forth in all the radiance of his glory. Let the unscrupulous manager make his fortune and catch the people's plaudits, but think of the unspeakable joy of Mozart on his deathbed, as every night he follows the performances in his imagination, act by act, piece by piece, hearing with a finer sense than human ear, and dreaming of generations to come that will call him master. The Requiem, which Mozart composed for the most part while Zauberflöter was running, is the only ecclesiastical work which does not follow in the rut of his contemporaries. All his masses, offertories, oratorios, etc., are unscrupulous adaptations of the operatic style to church music. The Requiem, completed by his pupil Susmeer, according to the master's direction, shows all the attributes of his genius. Deeply felt melody, masterful development, and a breadth of conception which betrays the influence of Handel. But, concludes Riemann, a soft radiant glow spreading over it all reminds us of Pergolesi. Yes, and that influence is felt in many a measure of this work. We should be tempted to use a trite metaphor if Pergolesi's mantle were adequate for the stature of a Mozart. As perhaps the finest example, in smaller form, of his church music, we may refer the reader to the celebrated Ave Verum, composed in 1791, which is reprinted in our musical supplement. Through Haydn and Mozart, orchestral music emerged strong and well-defined from a long period of dim growth. Their symphonies are, so to speak, the point of confluence of many streams of musical development, most of which, it may be remarked, have their source in Italy. The cultivation of solar melody, the development of harmony, largely by practice with the figured bass until it became part of the structure of music, the perfection of the string instruments of the viol type, and of the technique in playing and writing for them, the attempts to vivify operatic music by the use of various timbres, all these contributed to the establishment of orchestral music as an independent branch of the art. The question of form had been first solved in music for keyboard instruments, or for small groups of instruments, and was merely adapted to the orchestra. These lines of development we have traced in previous chapters. The building up of the frame, so to speak, of orchestral music was synthetical. It had to await the perfection of the various materials which were combined to make it. This was, as we have said, a long, slow process. The symphony was evolved, not created. So, in this respect, neither Haydn nor Mozart are creators. But once the various constituents had fallen into place, the perfected combination made clear new and peculiar possibilities, to the cultivation of which Haydn and Mozart contributed enormously. These peculiar possibilities were in the direction of sonority and tone colour. In search of these, Haydn and Mozart originated the orchestral style, and pointed the way for all subsequent composers. In the Haydn symphonies, orchestral music first rang even and clear. In those of Mozart it was first tinged with tone colours, so exquisite indeed that today, beside the brilliant works of Wagner and Strauss, the colours still glow unfaded. If Haydn and Mozart did not create the symphony, the excellence of their music standardised it. The blemish of conventionality and empty formalism cannot touch the excellence of their best work. Such excellence would have no power to move us were it only skill. 
there is genuine emotional inspiration in most of the Salomon symphonies and in the three great symphonies of Mozart. In Haydn's music, it is the simple emotion of folk songs. In Mozart's, it is more veiled and mysterious, subtle and elusive. In neither is it stormy and assertive, as in Beethoven, but it is nonetheless clearly felt. That is why their works endure. That is the personal touch, the special gift of each to the art. Attempts to exalt Beethoven's greatness by contrasting his music with theirs are in the main unjust and lead to false conclusions. Their clarity and graceful tenderness are not less intrinsically beautiful because Beethoven had the power of the storm. Moreover, the honest critic must admit that the first two symphonies of Beethoven fall short of the artistic beauty and the real greatness of the Mozart G minor or C major. Indeed, it is to be doubted if any orchestral music can be more beautiful than Mozart's little symphony in G minor, for that is perfect. We find in them the fresh morning spring of symphonic music, when the sun is bright, the air still cool and clear, the sparkling dew still on the grass. After them, a freshness has gone out of music, never to return. Never again shall we hear the husbandman whistle across the fields, nor the song of the happy youth of dreams stealing barefoot across the dewy grass. End of section 8